This did not do so swell in Sunday school. We'll give it a shot. We'll either get out early or we'll get out late. All right, John chapter 13 is where our text is. I did not finish the sermon last week. John 13, so really there's only one point left in the sermon. When you look at the text there, we have washed, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. And now we have this issue with Judas. Hopefully you'll learn some things from him this morning. John 13, and let's pick up in verse 18. Jesus says this, I am not speaking of all of you. He says, I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Last verse. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Father, I do ask your blessings upon your word. I ask that you will apply it to each individual heart the way you see fit to apply it, that we would find your word today profitable. And it would have a great effect upon our life, and that we would look more to you than we look to ourselves. We pray these things by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Now, I know that there are certain things in the Bible that cause a bit of tension. I think it's probably a little bit more tense to preach on the Sabbath day than it is to preach on election. Uh, But nevertheless, today we must look into this word of election, or this word of choice, And we must deal with the text we have. I know that in some regards I am an idiot, but I'm not a total idiot. I do know that there are other texts that you might want to look at in regards to election. There are other verses that you might find your favorite to be. But this is our text today. So it is my responsibility to deal with this text. Uh, And so that is what I will attempt to do. So in order to lay some groundwork, what we must understand from this final text here, we have 12 men in the room, all of their feet have been washed, all of their feet have been dried. Jesus has explained to them why he has done what he has done, in order to show them that the servant is not greater than the master. That's the lesson that they are to take and carry out into the rest of their ministry. The only one who does not do this is Judas. He has been chosen, he has been sent out, he has done ministry in the name of with the free will of Jesus, that he can freely choose whomever he decides to choose, whenever he decides to choose, for his own glory and for their own good. Now, in order to lay a little bit more foundation, let me give you a couple of verses that would come to mind as I think about Jesus and his choice of some to life and of some to perdition. In John chapter 6, I'm just going to give you 
John 1, I'll give you three sections of Scripture. John 6, take these things in mind as you listen to this text and wrestle with it today. These texts that I give you are true. They are the Word of God. John 6, verse 63. And he says in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's the truth. If you are spiritually alive today, it is because the Spirit gave you life. You cannot claim self-work, self-goodness, self-decisions. Why? Because the flesh is no help at all. Romans, a very lengthy and debatable passage by many, but let us hear just what the text says in Romans 9. Let us pick up in verse 10. Romans 9 and verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. Verse 11, note what the text says. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? The Greek words would be, may it never be, say it is never so, by no means. There's no injustice with God. Verse 15. For this is what he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on the human will or exertion or effort. Well, what does it depend on? It depends on God who has mercy. That's who it depends on. Election depends upon the mercy of God. Ephesians chapter 2. I know you're familiar with the text, but let us hear it again. Notice the pre-existing condition of Ephesians 2. Paul says to the Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What changed? Verse 4, but God... 
That's the difference maker. It does not say, but the will of man, but the good efforts of man, but the money of man. The thing that changes eternity is God. But God intervened when you were not looking for Him. When you were going about life in your merry old way, God intervened. God convicted you of sin. God showed you your failure. God showed you Christ on a cross. God showed you an empty tomb. God showed you mercy. And you responded. But God, being rich in mercy, rich, because of His great love, wherewith He loved us. It's the preacher's plea that you understand that it was not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So if at any given moment in your life, you're exposed to the truth, you're told about the mercy and the love of God, consider yourself privileged because God didn't have to show you a thing. And today he's reminding you of that when he chooses, he has the right to do so, to show mercy on whom he would show mercy. Now our text, verse 18, John 13 and 18. I do want you to be fully aware that nothing has caught Jesus off guard. Verse 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. He is not assuming that all twelve are truly in. It's not assuming that each one of them is on their way to glory. Why is he not assuming? Because he knows. He does not have to assume because he knows what's in the heart. This is important for you because he knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart. Men can be deceived. Apparently, all 12 of these guys can be deceived to some degree because they don't even know Judas is a traitor. But Jesus is not deceived. Jesus is not in the dark. Here's a guy carrying the money bag to every meeting. Here's a guy that shows up for every discipleship class. Here's a guy who goes out on mission to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to teach church. But he has not fooled Christ. He says, I know whom I have chosen. I know what's going on in this room, Jesus would say. And I would submit to you, Jesus knows what's going on in every room all the time. And that means every corridor of your heart. And I would even go this far to say this, that if Jesus was to visit the room of your heart this morning. You know how it works. Company comes to the door you weren't expecting. You grab everything. You clam it in the closet. You shut the door. And you bright them in. And you show them the house. They go by the closet. Don't open that door. Jesus opens that door. Of our heart. He knows. Verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The word chosen here is a different Greek word than some words that mean elect or chosen. It is ek legoma, which means to make a choice in accordance with a significant preference. 
to select someone or to select something for oneself. Jesus makes a selection of a group of men for himself. The primary cause of Jesus' election is for his own self-will. Now, I know that there are arguments over this issue and have gone on for thousands of centuries. The doctrine of election has been debated by many of the brightest minds that we have ever known. But whatever one may hold on such an important subject, we must wrestle with this truth that Jesus chose these 12 and he chose one of them to fulfill what Psalms 41.9 says. He chose them in accordance with their nature and he chose 11 against their nature. One is chosen in accordance with his nature. Eleven are chosen contrary to their nature. Now, I'll come back to that in just a moment. We see this understanding of Jesus choosing in these passages. We've already preached some of these. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? I chose twelve, and I am fully well aware that one of you twelve is in line or league with the devil. I know that I chose one that's associated with the devil. I know he'll do what the devil says, but I've chose him in accordance with his nature. I've chose 11 contrary to their nature. <clears throat> John 15, 16 says much the same. Jesus says it this way to these disciples. He makes it very clear. You did not choose me. That's what Jesus says in John 15, 16. But I chose you. I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he would give it to you. Then you progress on to John 17. Of those Jesus chose, he never lost one. You say, what about Judas? He chose Judas, and he's the son of perdition, and he dies and goes to hell. Did Jesus not lose him? <clears throat> John 17, 12 answers that. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The reason he's lost is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He was chosen in accordance with his nature which was a nature of rejection of the Son of God. And because of that, he is destroyed. If Judas was free to do other than what he did, it would mean that he would have been able to negate Psalm 41.9. Now, in Psalm 41.9, you will find that Jesus chose one to fulfill that passage. The passage of Psalm 41.9 says... Even my close friend. So here we're moving into a section. It's not pretty. 
But I want you to see the blackness of human depravity. Because this is really ugly now. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now Jesus doesn't quote the entirety of that verse. He just quotes the last part of it. The last part of it is, he lifted up his heel against me. What does this Hebrew phrase mean? He lifted up his heel against me. You can word it this way. He has given me a great fall. He has taken cruel advantage of me. Or he has walked out on me. In whatever way this Hebrew phrase is worded, it means that Jesus is betrayed by a close associate and he's sold out for a mere 30 pieces of silver because things weren't going the way that Judas wanted them to go. As I wrote this week out of the King James Version, Judas received the sop, but he did not receive the love. What does it mean that he received the sop, but he did not receive the love? King James uses the word sop for bread. He's more than willing to eat with the twelve, to even eat from the hand of Jesus. But he didn't receive the love. You say, in what way did he not receive it? Because if love is received, it's reciprocated. It means it's returned. So when one receives love, they give love back. Judas had no desire to give love back because he never received love to start with. He was just along for the ride to take the things that made benefit for his own flesh. Think about it. Is this right or good? Is this right of Jesus to choose someone like this to fulfill Scripture? Is, is Jesus doing an injustice here? Let's put it in some football terms. I hear college football's back on the TV. It's amazing now. People scared of COVID can get 100,000 strong in a stadium, and now they're not scared anymore. They're just scared to come to church, I suppose. But nevertheless, let's go to college football. There's a guy out there that coaches football. His name's Nick Saban. He coaches a team over in Alabama. Let's say that Nick Saban chooses a man who's six foot four and weighs 380 pounds to be on the defensive line. Has he done an injustice to pick a six foot two, 380 pound man to be on the defensive line? Is that wrong? Or has he picked a man in accordance with his nature and ability? So it doesn't necessarily make national news per se to pick a man like that. But if Nick Saban picks a six foot two guy who weighs 380 pounds to be a wide receiver, now that's weird because that's against the man's nature. This guy can't run. A, a, a four-second, a four hundred-yard dash or something, it's not going to happen, right? A four-second, 40, he can't do it. It makes no sense. He would be choosing someone against his nature. Jesus chose Judas in accordance with his nature. 
Judas did nothing against his will. He did exactly what he willed to do. I tell you what's remarkable is the choice of the eleven. Because they were chose against their will and against their nature. And they were chose to be something they're not. Somebody in the room right here at this point ought to be able to say amen. Because my nature would have sold Jesus out. My nature would have sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. My nature would have taken a knife and stabbed him in the back. I am thankful that Jesus chose me contrary to my will and made me into something that I never was. I got a new heart. And I got a new spirit that was different than the one I was born with. It's the power of conversion. But Judas is crooked, make no mistake about it. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We all begin like a Judas, do we not? Ephesians 2.1, we were born in the sins and trespasses. We, by nature, we were children of wrath. We're monsters of iniquity, the Puritans would say. Children of wrath destitute, alienated, foreigners in regards to the covenant promises, strangers, aliens, outsiders. Without divine intervention, we would simply wax worse and worse and worse. Is there a man in this room? Is there a woman in this room? You've made a mess of your life, and it seems like things just get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse. And every time you try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, it just doesn't work out. I've got good news for you. It's going to keep going that way until you look unto Christ. We have an inner problem with an alien solution. Think of how evil Judas is here for just a moment. He is willing, more than willing, to sit down, to lie on his side, and to eat bread from the hand of Jesus. Even with the other eleven. But at the same time, he's laying on his side, receiving bread out of the hand of Jesus. In the same time, his heart is crafting a sword to stab Jesus in the back. Now, you understand this happens in church life. It happens in Christendom. That people will get close and they'll eat off the church's produce. They'll eat off what the church should provide. They'll take the sop. But the whole time in their heart, if something goes contrary to their flesh, they'll sell the church out and stab her in the back and go off to the next place. This happens all the time. Why? They've never received the love of the church, and they've never reciprocated the love of the church. They're just simply usurping from the church to benefit their own flesh for as long as she'll last. That's the way Judas is. How can Jesus choose someone like this? One that is willing to kick Jesus when he's down. How can, how can people do something like Judas did? How can people in church do things like this? People act the way they act because their hearts are corrupt. The only hope of humanity, even within this church, is the preaching of the gospel. It's going to take a supernatural miracle for men to become something that they're not. It's not walk the aisle, repeat a prayer, jump through some religious hoop. 
This is a true, bona fide, divine miracle that must happen. A dead heart must be brought to life. A dead spirit must be removed. And a life-giving spirit must be applied and take up residence in an individual. When that happens, everything is eternally changed. Picture a moment. Judas receiving the bread from the hand of Jesus. The mind and heart plotting a way to sell him out. It happens in churches I've already mentioned. But think about it. Here he comes into the garden. There they are. And Judas goes up to Jesus and kiss. Have you seen it before? I love you. I love you. I love your preaching. I love your church. I love the people. I love everything you do. Stab, stab, stab. I'm out. Why? What's going on? There are people that will literally take that, which gives them what they want in their flesh, but never really have it internally because their hearts have never been changed. Judas is the example of this. But you'll find the other 11, they'll die for this cause. And they will not sell out the Lord. And they will stay strong to the end. Why? Because they have a different heart. And they have a different spirit. Look at the compassion of the Lord Jesus in verse 19. Look at the text again. Verse 19. Now, it's almost as if you have this turning to the 11. I'm telling you this now. Before it takes place, you see his sovereignty. He knows what's going to unfold in this next 24-hour period. I'm telling you this in advance, that when it does take place, that you would believe that I am. Here's the difficulty. When Judas does what he does, doubts could arise in the minds of the eleven. Man, everything's falling apart. This whole plan we had, look at what Judas has done. And now Jesus is arrested. All of these doubts could arise in their mind. Jesus knows this. So with love and compassion, he makes sure the 11 are prepared. When this happens, you know I told you beforehand that it was going to happen. He's preparing them for the future days. Basically, Jesus sows the truth into the heart of the disciples. When all is said and done... They will connect the dots. Jesus was lining this out from eternity past. His plan is perfectly unfolding just as he said it would. They'll be able to build upon that foundation in the future. His care in providing for their hearts for the upcoming days and hours. Now, look at his commission In verse 20. After he prepares their hearts for what is about to come. Look at verse 20. Amen, amen. I say to you. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. It's very notable for our day and hour. So let me say something about it. The commission must go forward. If you will glance just quickly over to John 20 and verse 21. That same thought of verse 20 is going to come up again. John 20 and 21. 
Jesus will say to them again, just a short time later, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Human nature, seen it so many times. When difficulties arise, some of you watch westerns, look back at the old days and watch westerns. When difficulties arise, you know what they do? Circle the wagons. Try to hold everything together where there's some stability, where the Indians can't scalp us, right? That's the way the westerns are. Very much the same way in Christian church life today. And anything gets difficult, we just withdraw from the world and huddle together, or we huddle with our own families, and we separate from the world in order to preserve our unity, in order to preserve our lives. That is never the thought of Christ. Every difficulty that comes to the disciples, every difficulty that comes to Christ is a cause for the advancing of the gospel. Every time things get hot, the preaching gets louder. Every time the persecution grows, mission flourishes. You see, all this persecution comes on the early church in Acts. If they were like us, they would all go into a cave and hide. But Paul is going to get money from Macedonia in order to make a mission trip. Peter's going out, they're standing in the public arena, and they're preaching the gospel because there's a plague in the land. Depravity everywhere. God sends me a text this week, and he says, people by the millions are dying every day, and your church is open. And I said, yes, people are dying by the millions every day, and our church is open. And he says, because you don't care. And I said, no, because we do care. Because people need a gospel. They need truth. Look, I've been through a whole week just like you have. I need to hear from God that Judas can't corrupt the plan. And that Jesus chooses and he holds to the very end. I need to know that the commission is still here. I need to know the gospel is still advancing. I still need to sing those old songs. And saints go marching. Remember that one? Man, what a song. The treachery of Judas does not cancel the mission It exposes the reality of what happens during the mission. Just like Judas rejected Christ, there will be people who reject your message. Know that ultimately, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one who sent you. Judas was sent out just like the rest of the disciples, and now he's a traitor. Does this mean somehow that we're to abort the mission? Somehow Jesus made a bad choice? Or does it mean that Christ would continue to send us forward? It's the message that matters. It's the message, not the messenger. What, even if the message is true, build your life on it. Even if Judas defects, the gospel is still to be preached. 
Oh, surely I hope it not to be prophecy, but let's say old Cody Torres over here on the front row, him and Jeff Crago get in some outdoor street evangelism ministry, and they go down the stockyards, or they go to the abortion clinic, and they preach the gospel somewhere. And let's say that both of them end up corrupt and sell out and go off into some type of drug abuse and end up in prison and die. What are we supposed to do? Stop preaching the gospel? Oh, well, you know, they didn't hold true, so we'll just quit. Hey, what, look, your pastor's been here for over 20 years. What if he has three affairs this week and, and, and embezzles money out of the church? What are you going to do, just close up shop and join Walmart? No. If you're doing this for me or for them, you've missed the whole deal. The gospel marches forward even if men are corrupt. Even if ministers fail. I mean, it's not right. It's certainly a shame upon the church. But difficulties, apostasy, and failures do not silence the gospel. It should be a catalyst to cause us to preach it all the more vehemently. Whether men be corrupt in heart or pure in heart, that's not the deal breaker. When truth is communicated, regardless of the messenger, the truth is to be believed. Per se in this sermon... Well, I don't necessarily think I agree with the, with the preacher. I mean, he wears spandex and rides a bicycle. He must be an idiot anyways. Fine. But does the text say what I'm telling you it says? Did he choose one to fulfill Scripture according to Psalm? And did he choose 11 against their nature and make them something they were not? Regardless of what I said, is that true? Is it true that he says the commission goes forward and that if they reject the messenger, they reject the one who sent the messenger? That's the truth. Regardless of who I am, the truth must be dealt with. You want it in simpler terms? This is what A.W. Pink said. What matters it to me? Whether the postman be black or white, pleasant or unpleasant, as long as he hands me the right letter. Amen? I don't care if the preacher's black, brown, short, tall, rich, or poor. Just give me the right gospel. There's a guy by the name of David from Honduras. Lives in Port Arthur and goes to Jonathan's church. Anytime you ask him, I got him on the phone the other day, what are you going to do today? It's always the same answer. We are going to preach the gospel, the right gospel. That's what he says every time. That's what matters. Give me the right mail. We are to be ambassadors for the one who was betrayed, condemned, and crucified. We are to take the message forth under his divine authority. Nothing that happens in the next 24 hours in this text, in the next few days in this text, diminishes Christ's authority or his purpose. Rather, it enables the mission to be fulfilled. When walking in obedience to Christ, there is unity. The disciples and the master are connected in a way that cannot be dissolved. When you individually go out of this place in agreement with the Messiah in agreement with him, communicating the truths that he's made real in your heart, you are in unity with the one who is authoritative over the entire universe. Let's put it the way Paul did then. Therefore, we should go forward like this. 2 Corinthians 5.20 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Look at what he says. God making his appeal through us. When you take the blessed gospel into the world, you have become a spokesperson for God. You're appealing on God's behalf that men be reconciled to God. And in men, all they can come up with is silly excuses. They go, what about Judas? What about Kenneth Copeland? What about, you know, this person? What about that person? What about that person? What about them? What about them? I'm bringing you a gospel about Christ. I'm his ambassador, and the king gave me a message to tell you to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, because if you do not, you're going to go to hell, regardless of what men have done. You say, well, how can you say that so confidently? The king gave the message to me to deliver it. I'm just an ambassador. All I am is a postman. And I might be a white postman, but the message is the same if a black postman brings it. Judas could not and did not cancel the mission. And 2,000 plus years later, we are living testimony that the mission did not die. Nothing the world does or says can abort the commission that we have been given. I know there's a billion different views on COVID, and if you want to fight about that later, that's fine. But COVID does not silence the gospel. COVID does not negate the gospel. It doesn't do away with divine appointments. It's like, oh, I can't share the gospel. I might get COVID. That is not the way it works. We share the gospel in the midst of COVID, just as well as we do in the midst of cancer, just as we do in the midst of a country that's aborting babies. All of these situations, the gospel cannot be silenced been given a message to take to the nations, to proclaim it, and to do so, listen, I haven't lost my text, and to do so with a heart motive that washes people's feet. As I told you earlier, Jesus said to them later, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now I ask you this morning, and I'm done. Has your heart truly been changed? Have you received a new spirit? Everybody in this room can be convinced that you're Christian. But Jesus searches your heart. Has there been a radical, supernatural change internally that is now being exposed externally or are you just religious convincing yourself you're okay because you come to church on a regular basis don't make the error that Judas made give your life to Christ Lord have mercy on me that's the heart of a person who wants to be saved, Lord, have mercy. Make me something I'm not. Give me a heart I don't have. Give me a spirit that I don't possess. Make me something new. 
I can't live in this fallen depravity any longer. My sins, the weight of them, are too heavy. I need forgiveness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would you come to Him? He is the fountain of living water. And dear saint, I don't know where each one of you are. I don't know what your minds do through the week. I don't know what your positions are. But I can tell you this. COVID has no authority to silence the gospel. And if you're allowing COVID to shut your mouth about the gospel, you are in disobedience to the great commission of God. The gospel is to go forward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Brother Jeff, you come.